Uninvisible is a support podcast that provides information, ideas, suggestions, and experiences that deal squarely with medical issues that present unique advocacy issues for individuals. We do not provide medical advice of any kind. We do provide support, concepts, ideas, discussions, and information that you can use to make sure that you are being heard and that your concerns are being addressed. Please consult with your physician for any medical issue that you are facing, but we will be here for you along your journey. We welcome all comments about our episodes and, of course, the correction of any errors. Information and comments that you send to us are governed by our Terms of Service and Privacy Policy, which are available on our website located at www.uninvisiblepod.com. The opinions expressed by guests are their own and are not necessarily the opinion of Uninvisible or the show sponsors. Most of all, we welcome your stories and experiences to share with our community because without you, this community and the benefit it offers all of us would not exist. Any advertising that you may hear is accepted without regard to our editorial content. Of course, in the event that you are having a medical emergency of any kind, consult your physician or emergency services. Welcome to Uninvisible. I'm your host, Lauren Friedman, and I'm here with my guests to bring you info, insights, and inspiration for coping with, diagnosing, and treating invisible illness. We're here oversharing, so you don't have to struggle with invisibility anymore. All right, guys, thank you so much for joining us today. I am here with Thomas Smith, who's joining us from the UK. He is. Hello. He is a patient advocate and a public involvement consultant and lives with cystic fibrosis. So Thomas, thank you so much for joining us. No problem. It's a pleasure. Yeah, absolutely. Great having you here. And as always, we love having international guests on the show because we get a glimpse into another medical system, which is (laughs) always fascinating. So why don't we start with the basics? Um, Mm. uh, Why don't you tell us when and how you first realized that you had some kind of chronic illness going on and how it manifested for you? Um, so, excuse me, my... Oh, um, and I should say also, um, listeners may hear you clearing your throat or coughing during the interview, but that's pretty normal for some yeah, like fibrosis. Yeah, don't worry about that. <laughs> exactly. Um, so, I, I would guess um, I'm, I'm um, relatively aware of how diagnosis with CF usually goes, and I think that my... Um, my diagnosis is pretty typical. I was diagnosed um, at six weeks old, mm. um, and then very lived a very unexceptional life until um, I, I, the, the first hospital stay I remember, which I think was actually the first one I had. So I was born in 1988, mm. and for some reason, it stands out that before 15 or 16, the only hospital admission I had. Mm. It was on the hottest day of the year in 1997. Wow. So, <clears throat> so I lived there. Like I say, it was, um, for me, it, probably to my detriment, I might add, it was not something I even ever considered mm. um, until maybe 16. And then, again, it's very common to yeah, when people get to sort of teenage years, you develop some sort of level of, um, you know, vanity. It's completely normal. And you just completely deny the situation that you're in. I, I don't really think that you're mature enough to understand the situation that you're in either. Mm. So even when I started to have um, hospital admissions, it wasn't something that I really, I, I don't know, I, I didn't really think about it properly. And then actually 
the the first time I thought, oh yeah, maybe I am um, going down the drain, so to speak, mm-hmm. was when I had my gastrostomy fitted, it's like a feeding tube. Uh, okay. Which I no longer have. Um, okay. So I pulled it out because I'm stubborn and belligerent. But uh, <laughs> anyone listening to CF, do not or any other disease, do not do that. Yeah, don't do um, this at home. <laughs> don't do this. Um, so. Um, yeah, I and that was um, ultimately the first positive, um, difficult decision that I made to start looking after myself because it's it's optional. You know, you, these uh, procedures aren't forced upon you, um, really. Um, you know, they, they are advised strongly, but you don't actually have to do it. Um, so I had my gastrostomy fitted when I was, I think, I was seventeen hmm. or eighteen. Um, it wasn't. Um, looking after myself properly, I always um, we call them A levels here. It's basically, I think, I was. It, it's, it's basically the education that you have between sixteen and eighteen, and then you go yeah. to university. Um, so I was doing quite intense subjects. I was doing um, biology, chemistry, English literature, English language, and I was just also, you know, drinking a lot um, with my friends and stuff, and just burning the candle at both ends. Um, yeah. And ultimately, definitely denying the situation I was in. Yeah. Um, so that was the hardest decision I ever made. But looking back, it was pivotal. Mm-hmm. Um, and that's when I really thought, yeah, you need to sort of do something about this. Um, yeah. So what steps at that point did you take to take control of your health? Well, I, th- I think simply deciding to have the procedure, agreeing to... Um, you know, go along with it and stop denying things. Um, so that was the first, like I say, the first um, positive step. It was enormously difficult. Mm. It completely, it you know, it, it brings you back down to earth. Um, when you're A, that frail, like you need to have it, and then B, um, it's completely not normal to have a feeding tube inserted into your stomach from the outside. You know, it's yeah. it's not. Um, and it, it's 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 shattering, but I think you you need that. I needed it, I should say. I needed um, something to sort of. It was irrefutable, you know. You can't really deny your situation anymore when you get to a fork in the road where you might need to have a feeding tube fitted. Yeah. Um, and then that led to I. Was it? It wasn't that much longer. Maybe twelve months later, I had um, a passport fitted. Do you okay. know what they are? Like, no, um, I don't. I only know the, the passports for traveling. So tell yeah, us. <laughs> it's basically um, because I was having a lot of treatment. There's a lot. There's a large volume of antibiotic drugs, which can be toxic and irritate the tissue around peripheral veins, and they become blocked. Hmm. Complete pain in the ass. Um, so then I basically had um, the passport fitted, which is um, it goes into a big vein near your heart and it's mm. actually in my right bicep okay. now I had it recited recently um, <clears throat> and basically it's just a way to get large volumes of potentially irritable um, drugs into your system to sort of make you better and it also is, like, is good for um, blood withdrawal as well. Mm. It sounds but, like it's very similar to what we would call a central line here in the state. Yes, yes. A lot, a lot of people have them in the chest Mm-hmm. Um, I wasn't offered that. I don't think I just have it in my arm. Right. Um, I'm not really sure how typical that is. I know that some patients have central lines 
some people seem to have more sort of peripheral ones. Mm. So, and and then I think, um, <clears throat> excuse me, mm. after I had that fitted, that was, you know, two big things. And then what happened? So I think I must have been maybe 19 or 20. Early days of uni. Yeah, well, I, I, I didn't get that. Um, uh. <clears throat> I, I have two degrees now. But as a mature student, I I, could, I didn't finish my A-levels. I, I have, um, until university, very little education. Um, so <clears throat> then I had the passport fitted. And then I was in a, a long-term relationship with my first girlfriend. She was very nice, blah, blah, blah. <laughs> and then we just sort of grew apart. So we split up. And actually, it, the, the fact of the matter is, I was so, I, you know, obviously you hurt when you go through a breakup and stuff. And, Mm. It all came down to um, a, a not wanting to look like a sick person because I was having lots of routine admissions when I was with her, mm. and then B, I, as petty as this sounds, it's very honest. I didn't want her to know where I was uh, if I was in hospital. I didn't want her to know that I was in this sort of captive environment. Mm. Um, so I just started doing my physio every single day, which I didn't really do before that. So now I do it between two and three hours a day, and I, I must have missed maybe fifteen or twenty days of physio since I was twenty-four, and I'm thirty-one now. Yeah. And it what does travel. the physio consist of on a daily basis? So, <clears throat> for me, I um, breathe in hypertonic saline. It's it's archaic, really. It's medieval, um, and it just makes you cough. Um, but the idea is to loosen the mucus that's building exactly, up. Exactly, yeah. And it, it loosens secretions. Um, it, it does have a mechanism. It's not simply an irritant for your throat. Um, and basically, so I breathe in that solution. Um, it takes me about 15 or 20 minutes to do that. And then for the, the rest of the time, I do sort of breathing exercises and coughing and mm. um, postural drainage and stuff. So you sort of orientate yourself differently. Mm. Um so yeah, it's it's a huge burden. That, that's the worst thing about my disease at this stage of my life. Yeah, it's just time consuming. Like you've got to. It sounds like you, you've got to plan your day around it. Really, like either Absolutely. you're getting up earlier to do it, or stopping in the middle of the day. Absolutely. Like, are you doing it throughout the day at different times, or are you just doing it sort of lumping no, it? For me, I love the feeling of being out for the day. Yeah, you know, I, I do it first thing. Um, I usually wake up at eight, um, and I'll do my I mean, I, I, I do sort of inhaled antibiotics month off, month on, month off, mm. um, back to back. So it depends what antibiotic I'm on at the time, but generally I um, get up at eight, start physio, um, do it till probably around lunchtime-ish. Mm. Uh, and then I just, like, I just love the feeling of like, right, now I can do the things that I want to do. And often, like now, it's... Um, you know, just after 8 p.m. for me here. And I've been out all day doing work and working out and stuff like that. It's a huge burden. It's the biggest problem. It really is. Like, it contributes to fatigue as well. Well, for me, it's it's not tiring. It's just, it's boring. Um, and, and it's all like, I, I definitely feel better when I've done it. But it's just so time consuming it. I think it probably almost certainly can be tiring for some CF patients. Yeah. Um, but it's not for me at the moment. 
But yeah, I just, <clears throat> excuse me, I just love the um, getting out and doing things that are interesting, yeah. you know. The amount Absolutely. of time I spend on YouTube is insane. <laughs> <laughs> That's fair enough. You've got to keep yourself distracted, I suppose. <laughs> so Absolutely. you mentioned that um, you really started taking better care of yourself from your teenagers onward because of the feet tube and everything else that sort of yeah. happened after that. Um, <laughs> what was that like growing up, knowing that you have this chronic degenerative illness were there discussions about mortality and has that affected the way that you've lived your life as well? Um, there were, <clears throat> excuse me. Um, there weren't direct conversations about mortality. Um, I think like when you come into contact with your CF care team, <clears throat> excuse me, mm. it's kind of, you can't really escape it. They never talk about life expectancy and stuff. Okay. But, you know, it's just kind of out there and you sort of come across it and you pick it up. Um, but for me, it never played any any part of my attitude and approach to my disease at all. Um, you were able to, like, not have to focus on it. Absolutely, because <clears throat> what's, what's, I really don't see the benefit of it. Um, it... I think even now, I'm an engaged patient and a very active patient and... Excuse me. I, I, um, I, it, it doesn't motivate me. Yeah. It motivate me. It doesn't, it's, it's not part of how I live my life. It's not how I was raised. Um, my dad always used to say to me when I was kind of down about things, he would say, um, getting upset's not going to change yeah. anything. Like it's not going to. Like it's make... a waste of energy. Absolutely. Like, yeah. Whether you like it or not, this is your daily routine. This is what you have to do. And you have to get it done. And now it's just so much, it's so habitual for me now that actually I've just maintained health, um, touch wood. Um, it's worked, you know? Yeah. Um, a lot of work, but it does the job. But you're putting the work in and you're seeing the results, obviously, because it doesn't seem like you've had any major relapses where you've ended up in hospital for <clears> a while now. Exactly. Um, and that's because, as I'm sure anyone um, with CF who's listened to this will know, there's very, very little that you can do that actually makes you feel better. Mm. <laughs> but you can buy yourself time um, and stability to have a more interesting life that's less centered and focused around um, your disease. Yeah. I mean, do you find that that's also an identity issue? Like, you know, so many people that we talk to in this community, um, we, we talk about the idea that settles in that your chronic illness doesn't define you. And it sounds um, like you're definitely in that camp, that it's a part of who you are, but it isn't who you are. <clears throat> Absolutely. Um, and that's never, ever, um, I would love to take credit for that, but it's simply nothing to do with me. It's just how I was raised. Um, yeah. And I think that's almost one of the only... <clears throat> upsides of the shame that you feel or I felt I should say as a young man mm. um is you know you do an awful lot to either minimize it or just flat out refuse to accept that that's a situation that you're in mm. and I, I I don't it's really not for me to tell people how to live and how to deal with their disease but I can't relate to people who 
orient, orientate themselves around their disease. It's not the problem I have, and it's caused me a lot of emotional difficulty over the years. Is <clears throat> excuse me, I would never be happy with relative success. Like I would never be happy with like, oh, hasn't he done well considering he's got CF or anything like that? And it's um. I'm really happy with the way that my life is going professionally, like economically, things have never been better. Yeah. And it's all down to that approach. And really having drive and ambition beyond being... Absolutely, yes. <clears throat> For anyone um, who's listening to this, my own story is is really sort of simple. Like the second I started to engage with my disease outside of doing the treatment and stuff like that, my world completely changed. I had very, very, very little to say for myself until about three years ago. <clears throat> and now, like, like I, I travel um, an awful lot. I have a really interesting life. Um, work outside of advocacy is really well paid. I'm really happy. It's all come from just changing that, like, just throwing yourself into it almost. Like, yeah. Stop. Well, releasing, it sounds like releasing the, the mentality of being ill. Totally, absolutely, absolutely. And yeah. the idea that I would have done this, this podcast <clears throat> as little as three and a half years ago would never, ever, ever, ever have happened. I would never, ever have done this. I would never, you know, spoken about the issues that I faced mm-hmm. or the prognosis or, you know, the physical difficulties and stuff like that ever. But... Mm-hmm. Now that I have, it's completely opened my world up. Wow, that's really cool. So it's actually you've sort of gone from not engaging to engaging and then engaging even more deeply because of the community, it sounds like. Absolutely. And it's, it's, it's at a point now with me where um, I, I know that you spoke with uh, Trishna Brady recently. She's fantastic. Yeah. I'm sure she will tell you the same thing. You can do far too much. It's very easy to do that now. Um, mm-hmm. And you know, because you, you, it just has, there is nothing like advocacy. It really has a huge pull. And it's, you can have an interesting life. You can work in amazing environments, fantastic educational establishments, you know, see the world, um, meet yeah. people. And I was not able to do that before any of this. And it becomes addictive. And the more you, do, you never fail to feel better when you work um, on your disease or um, others like chronic illness, rare disease, whatever, like you always meet people who know what it's like. Mm. Always. And my entire life, I never met anybody who knew what it was like. Until and, you started engaging in the Exactly. Community. And so like, I used to have such um, a naive, uneducated, simplistic view of the world. Like I used to think that everybody who looks um, good and successful doesn't have difficulties in their lives and it's just not true I've met some um, very like um, really su- financially successful people um, who are either parents or patients themselves attractive people you know it's and it completely dissolves that mm. so it makes me happier in life outside of advocacy because the comparison is more nuanced almost. You can't help but compare yourself because that's the world we live in. Yeah. But I feel like I genuinely understand life far better now because of advocacy. 
That's really wonderful. And I want to get more into your advocacy work in a minute. But before we do, you mentioned your dad giving you advice. And I wondered if along this road to self-acceptance, you found that you actually needed an advocate working on your behalf, like whether you were bringing someone to appointments or, um, you know, looking to someone to help guide you through this world. Was there ever anyone that you leaned on for that kind of support? Well, the fact is, no. Mm. Um, so I think I, you know, credit my parents uh, and the way that they raised me with everything. But also the other, the other side of that is they were there practically um, when I couldn't drive my hospital, um, excuse me, my care center is about 90 minutes drive away from me. Okay. So my dad's a GP and he was oh, okay. like, um, he drove me to all my appointments. Um, and when I've been ill, he's always, um, come down, which is great, but actually they still don't know what it's really like. Cause it's, you know, the book stops with you, doesn't it? Like it yeah. doesn't matter. Like they're fantastic at, um, you know, yeah, the practical considerations of mm-hmm. my disease, but actually um, emotional understanding of um, rare disease or the patient experience. Or, or I have, abs- I've done it all myself. I had absolutely no, I didn't even know advocacy existed. Yeah. I away from it I was. Well, tell right? us about your journey into it then. How did you get involved in advocacy and connect with the community of chronic illness people out there? Um. I hope you're sitting comfortably because this might take a while. (laughs) I am very comfortable, actually. (laughs) This episode is sponsored by Ember Labs, creators of the Ember Wave, the intelligent bracelet that helps control how you experience temperature. I'm heat sensitive, and this device has been a lifesaver. Using patented technology, it cools or warms the temperature-sensitive skin on your wrist, creating a natural response in your body and mind that helps you thermally adjust in minutes. It was selected by Time Magazine as one of 2018's best inventions, for those of you with mounting medical costs to consider, the team at Ember offer a payment plan in partnership with a firm. And now through December 18th, Ember Labs is offering listeners of Uninvisible Pod $50 off. Go to emberwave.com slash invisible, that's E-M-B-R wave.com slash invisible, and experience personal thermal wellness on a whole new level with me. Um, let me try and think. At the time, I was working... I didn't know what to do with my life um, and I was working for free um, at um, a web design company near mm. to me and I start. I don't know why I did it I started following um, the CF Trust and other patient organizations like um, the European Patients Forum and we have uh, an organization here in the UK called Genetic Alliance UK mm. and they posted that they were looking for people to um, help uh, shape the the tone of language that was used to discuss um, genome medicine and human genomics. And I thought, yeah, okay, that sounds cool. Um, I'll give it a stab. And I just sat on the side of my bed and I did the application form um, on my phone. I didn't, I really didn't give it any sort of you know, I didn't put the effort in that I should have done, really. And then it's never happened before. But every single day for about five or six days after that, I would think, oh, I've done that. That would have been useful to put in the application. Or why did I tell <laughs> about this? And I was thinking, hang on, maybe this means something. 
Like, because I've never, like I say, I've never felt like this before about anything. So I tried to find the um, link to apply and I couldn't find it. It took me ages when I actually did. It took me about 30 minutes. So I, I, sorry, it took me about 30 minutes to speak to the person that I needed to speak to because mm. I couldn't remember exactly where I'd seen it or, or things like that. So um, I spoke to um, a lovely uh, colleague of mine uh, called Mariana Campos, who, who works at the Francis Crick Institute now, but mm. she used to work there. And it turns out she was the person I needed to speak to. So after calling the wrong people two or three times, I actually um, <laughs> got to the right organisation and then to her. I said, oh, yeah, this is a bit weird. You don't know who I am. My name's Tom. I've applied for this. I've really rushed it. I've thought of loads of things that I want to tell you about that I didn't put in my application. And she was like, oh, okay, well, off you go. Um, so I was kind of put on the spot and I thought, okay, well, okay, I've done this, that and the other. Um, sorry, this is weird. Thanks for your time. Bye. <laughs> and, um, and yeah, and, and then a couple of weeks later, I got an email confirmation that I was going to be invited to to be involved in this project. And again, I remember I was driving home and I was just so excited about that. Mm. Um <clears throat> And I don't know why, yeah. because it's it's a relative like it's it's really interesting work, but it's relatively low level. It's not, and it's, so it, there was something subconscious that happened. I think basically, so started working with Genetic Alliance. Um, then I found out about the Euro- European Patients Forum, mm. and then they have um, a summer training, like patient leader sort of training course in Vienna every year. And I found out about that, and it's quite um, competitive. Mm. Um, so I applied and managed to get there. Um, so I spent a week in Vienna with other like MS patients, cancer patients. That's like, amazing. Yeah. Yeah, and and they were they were all under thirty. I think it's an eighteen to thirty kind of thing. So you were also engaging not just with people in the cystic fibrosis community. Absolutely, but also with I, I really don't think it. That it's really not helpful to just stay in your lane, so to speak. It's mm. useless. You need to have a more global view. Yeah. Um, but when I was in Vienna, um, there was someone there from who was really senior in France's National Parkinson's Association, I think. Um, and we had a quick chat, pretty unsubstantial, went home, had a fantastic time. Then about two or three months later, so she sent me a message on Slack, which was the application process to the European Health Parliament in Brussels. Wow. I applied for that. Um, I got that. And it's all just gone from there. And it's and then I was invited back to Vienna the following year as, as almost like um, alumni kind of thing to just sort of help so kind of facilitate a bit, but also just sort of build on what I'd already learned. And, mm. you know, it's just... It's it's amazing what I've done. Like I love it. And the only thing is <laughs> I want to get paid to do it. That's the issue. <laughs> well, that is the difficulty, isn't it, with patient advocacy too, because a lot of it is volunteer work. But it is. you are also getting the opportunity to to meet all these people in the chronic illness community. And I'm interested yeah. to hear how that's like deepened your understanding not only of chronic illness but also of yourself and your own experience. How has that changed your view on it? 
Yes, I completely agree that I have had amazing experiences in amazing places many, many times over the past two and a half years, three years. So have a lot of people who've been working mm. and getting paid to be there. And it essentially comes down to this. Um, I don't really think, I don't believe in tokenism. I don't believe in balancing the books, balancing the boards. So, sorry. Um, it, it comes down to this. There is a fundamentally good commercial argument for patient involvement. Yeah. And it's not about, like I say, it's not about inclusion. It's about money. Yeah. And it's uh, the patient advocates are the best kept secret in the world. Mm. And it's exploitative and it's not right. Yeah. And, but again, it's only not right. Not in like, oh, it's not fair. It's like, no, but we add money to people's pockets. Like it's yeah. not about fairness. Um, it's actually fascinating you're mentioning this because Trishna touched on this when I interviewed her and obviously she connected us. Um, mm. But one of the, her, the second part of our interview went live today. And mm. the, the bit of the interview that I highlighted was her talking about patients being treated with the same respect and being, you know, compensated as fairly as medical professionals are because patient Absolutely. advocates are just as valuable, particularly to like pharmaceutical companies and, um, you know, companies that are looking to find ways to actually save money. Trishna has led so many different companies, and I'm sure you have too, through mm. different processes that have actually saved the money in trial periods and all that kind of thing. So developing those kinds of communication um, roots with various practitioners, pharmaceutical companies, and patients mm. actually saves everyone time and money. But it's people realizing that the role needs to be played by these patient advocates, doesn't it? Uh, I, I just, I don't understand how we are at where we are at with it. Yeah. Um, I'm working with um, a patient organization and we're producing uh, materials on how to meaningfully involve patients in clinical trial design. And it's just, we had a conversation, because basically um, I kind of was starting to put a lot of time into it, mm. and which is fine, I guess. Um, but but I you have to recognize your own boundaries too, because like at the end of the day... <laughs> Uh, and let, let me say this before we go any further. I don't think patients are more important than anybody else in the process. Mm. But the idea that we are less important is completely laughable. Yeah. And it's just a complete joke. But yeah, they're putting together resources, how to meaningfully involve patients in uh, clinical trial design. And I got to the point where I was like, I'm doing too much. I'm not getting paid. I want to have a conversation about this with them. So I did that. And the person I spoke to reminded me that you know, well, participation in the working group is voluntary. Yeah, and I said, well, it is for me and nobody else um, because they are at work. Um, I was the only patient in that working group. Uh, I'm still in it. Um, and it's just laughable. It's exploitative. It's just like a joke, a complete joke. So how do you change that? I mean, is it is it continuing to have these conversations with the people who hold the the keys to the bank yes uh and it's also about 
providing better advocates because that is something I feel very very strongly about is bad advocacy Hmm. if you have an axe to grind go and do it somewhere else because for example like I've um, worked with some senior people in Johnson & Johnson Hmm. and they're not bad people at all like first and foremost but they are very far removed from um, From the the patient experience and yeah. understanding the the value of it because they don't need to um but if you if you work for i don't know let's say it takes six months to get a meeting with someone who's really senior and then you go into that meeting and you complain or cry or it's just this isn't the, the real world this is not how it works you know like if you can present either a scientific or commercial argument to these people they will listen yeah well, if you expect them to care about you and your patient experience, forget it because they're not going to. Yeah. It's- and bottom line, this is all about the patient experience. So the fact exactly. that they're not even hearing the, about that from the people who are working with them to make Absolutely. everything better is, is at, at best ironic. Well, does it, if you involve patients, um, good patients, good, good patient advocates, I should say, in the development of any good product or service, you will get a better good product or service out of it. Yeah. And you will make more money. So what drives me mad is I know that pharmaceutical um, consultants contact patient organizations very often Mm. to speak with them about something that they're working on. Mm. So they take the patient's knowledge and direct it straight into the pharmaceutical company at, what, a thousand, two thousand pounds per day? Yeah. It's just, it's a joke. It's it's a complete joke. It sounds like funds um, are really just literally being diverted in the wrong absolutely, direction. Absolutely. Um, but that's always been the case with pharmaceutical companies too. And, you know, historically, at least here in the States, there's such a monopoly on profit in the medical industry that's really, it's it's run by the pharmaceutical companies, you know? Yes, um, but I also think that if you can demonstrate that you can make them more money, yeah, be interested in that. Um, but yeah, so I think it's about um, having the conversations with people who you think you deserve money from, mm. putting it to them in a professional, non-emotional way. Yeah. Also, educating advocates about the commercial argument for the work that they do, and then generally skilling them better. Yeah. So it's really like you're not only advocating for patients, but you're advocating for patient advocates. That, wow. that is exactly what it is. I, I, um, when I was working um, in the European Parliament one day, I was walking from one room to another. And there's a chap called Robert Maidlin, who I think he was head of FIPRA. I don't know if he's still there anymore, but he said, so who are you here for? Who are you representing? And I said, well, you know, this is my disease community. You know, mental health is hugely important to me as well. But actually, I'm here advocating advocacy. It's, I wasn't there at all to serve my own interests um, or the interests of my organizations. It's mm-hmm. just simply promoting meaningful patient involvement. Yeah. No, it's absolutely, it's so important as well. And I'm wondering if you've also, I mean, it sounds like you're already coming up against difficulties with these companies that you're working for as a consultant, right? But mm-hmm. What's happened with you for you within the medical system as well? Have you found that you come up against roadblocks within the NHS or with various healthcare professionals or even individuals where you're like forced to first of all justify that you even have an illness because no one can see it from the outside? Um, well, 
it's not necessarily roadblocks, just emissions. Um, <clears throat> like, I, what's scary is, like, um, I'm a patient, you're a patient, and you and I both have experiences about advocating for what's right or what should be done with patient bond, but also your own interests as a patient, your healthcare needs. And I think that you have to be on it. Mm. Because it's not, I, I really don't think people are, you know, I don't think there's any malintent. There's no yeah. maliciousness, but like, for example, on my CF unit, they have 450 patients or something. Wow. You know, there's, there's a lot of people to keep track of, and you have to be, you have to ask questions, never demand, but ask questions, because the fact is, they're human beings as well, and they might have forgotten to um, give you a prescription or to mention this trial or whatever and I, you have to you have to take um, <clears throat> an active role in it yeah to get the most out of it absolutely and are there ways in which I mean obviously we're talking we've talked about the ways in which patient advocacy isn't quite connecting the dots right but what about the ways in which the NHS <laughs> Forgive me, NHS, because I think the NHS is wonderful. I think we all go through this. We're like, the NHS is amazing. Universal healthcare is amazing. However, are there ways in which... Are, why don't we go through the ways in which it's helping patients and patients with chronic illness like you and I, but also mm. the ways in which it's harming patients as well? Well, <clears throat> so I guess the Health Research Authority is kind of part of the same thing. I... Um, work for a research ethics committee mm. and the applications that we see are really varied super interesting job <clears throat> i absolutely love it but at the moment all that's mandated for patient involvement is like have the patient been involved in the design of this trial or whatever mm. tick the box yes and then if you have to justify what have they done and nine times out of ten it's we've shown them promotional materials and they said, yeah, it's all right. Mm-hmm. And that's it, you know? Um, so <clears throat> so really what that, you're getting at is that not every patient is really that involved. Not, not, not every patient is that involved, but also they're not doing an awful lot to, they're doing more. Mm. Um, it's, it's only going to go up. Thank God. Yeah. But they're not great at demanding meaningful involvement. But you do you know, think that's because of the lack of education that's available directly through medical providers? Um, it could be that. I think it's cultural as well. Mm. You know, we still live in a world where the, the, the doctors and physicians are up here and the patients are, you know, at their mercy. And, you mm. know, like there's still the, the, the notion, the idea that patients are sat on on their beds in pajamas waiting for something to happen is still very much alive. Yeah. So, you know, it's cultural. And also just the the practical considerations. Um, The NHS seems to be willing to have a conversation about it. Right. Again, going back to what I was just ranting about, (laughs) the NHS, more cash-strapped than ever. Hmm. Um, And it's, if like, what better time to promote the benefits of patient involvement mm. oh it's like oh you've got less resources than ever and you need them to go further i've got just a solution for you Tom <laughs> uh, smith is going to help with this and yeah. you know the argument has never been stronger for it and i think purely on an economic um basis they're willing to have the 
conversation more and more. Yeah. But it's interesting too, because you mentioned that your dad's a GP, right? Like, do you think Mm -hmm. because you grew up in an environment where you had a casual and close relationship with someone in the medical system that you are more comfortable confronting it as well? That like, it's easier Uh, for you to demand what you want because you know doctors, like you don't have white coat syndrome (laughs) like some other people might have? Um, I, I think that there are there are lots of patient advocates who don't have the privilege of a dad as a GP. Yeah. Who are very demanding and very knowledgeable, skillful patients. Um, <clears throat> but for me, I think it really helps to understand the reality of the caregiver-patient relationship. He, you know, for my dad, he's, he's coming to the end of his working life now, he'll be retiring soon. And... It's it's a job like any other. Mm. You know, there are a lot of people who genuinely care and want want to make it as big a difference as possible, like cure the world kind of thing. Mm. But actually, it's really helped me understand that actually, it's almost like you can see behind the curtain and, you know, yes, the care, like my dad, you know, the favourite part of, of his job is his um, FaceTime with patients. Mm. But also, you know, he's he's a regular guy, like yeah. you know, any mechanic or teacher or whatever, and he's got his own pressures, and he it's simply impractical and unrealistic to deeply care about every single one of your patients. Right. Sometimes you just need to move them along, you know, yeah. to, to the next um, stage in the diagnosis or the treatment or whatever. Um, so I think it's helped me understand the reality of a physician's life but also I only started to be more demanding as a patient when excuse me when I again when I got into advocacy I think like advocacy has helped me emotionally it Mm -hmm. it cannot be um, overstated how much it's helped me but actually I've learned to advocate for myself my own interests at the same time so it's probably had a very very positive impact on my health as well yeah yeah absolutely that makes a lot of sense and you also mentioned mental health and its importance mm-hmm. to you. can you talk to us a bit about your involvement in mental health advocacy too yeah so <clears throat> um I am um have you heard of mind it's Britain's it sounds familiar yeah it's it's Britain's biggest um mental health charity um Mm. and i'm a trustee there and i was never a service user of mind purely because i was not aware that it existed when i needed it Mm. um but i've um yeah i had my first lung transplant assessment when i was mm, 17 maybe that's so casually too this is like a big deal, a lung transplant, by the way. <laughs> but to be perfectly honest, I look back at that stage of my life and I can't believe it was me. Mm. Like, it's so bizarre. Like, I'm 31 now, so let's call it, you know, 14 years ago when things really started to head, to head south. It's very, Did very... you actually, have you had a, a transplant? I've had three failed assessments and still okay. not had a transplant because that, that's how much I pick myself up out of the, the toilet so to speak you yeah. know that's how, you how much I, yeah like commitment and consistency has transformed my life no doubt about it um <clears throat> but yeah so when you have a lung transplant assessment I'm not sure if it's the same in the US but in the UK there is a mandatory psychological evaluation component of that 
Mm. You know, can you like survivors' guilt? What's your emotional resilience like? What's your support network like? And stuff like that. So that was the first time I had any sort of um, psychotherapy, if you will. And that um, was with a, a chap called Gary Latchford, who is a clinical psychologist, but kind of specialised in, in CF. And I still see him. I see him once wow. a month. Yeah. Um, and I, I, I really believe that, I think that this prevailing cultural wind of modern life is damaging in every conceivable way. Mm. And I think that we are not designed from an evolutionary point of view, the pressures of the modern world are so new. Mm. We have absolutely no need or ability to um, cope with it forever without a problem. Yeah. Like if you, like, you know, um, Instagram, you know, everybody knows about the, the issue with that. But the fact is, like, for example, not just with rare disease, but <clears throat> if you have a, a low-paid job and everything is telling you to look like this. Yeah. Or to get, spend money on this product. Yeah, or, yeah. You get into debt to pay for that or to lease your Range Rover or whatever. And that just traps you in the low-paid job that you're in. Yeah. <clears throat> so you, And you have to do that for 40 years without a problem. Mm. Not going to happen. Yeah. It's not going to happen. Like, even if you loved your job, there are people who, you know, it's you're still going to struggle with it if you do it for long enough. Mm. And, you know, I think that. So really, I mean, essentially, I'm just going to sum this up for people who are listening. Like what you're saying, there's no such thing as work-life balance at this point. Because the demands, the way that we're expected to live our lives doesn't match income or opportunity. Absolutely. Uh, The way that we are expected to live our lives is... Well, how it's just it's it's removed from reality. Yeah, that's what it is. Like, so um, how do you do it? You do it with mental health, with counseling. Yeah. So I, um, I think, you know, the conversation has never been louder, kind of thing. And people yeah. are starting to understand how messed up, you know, the world is when it comes to sort of appearances and superficiality and stuff. But for me, I still see Gary once a month. Hmm. Um, it's something that I really feel like is me time. Like I yeah. still, I, he, he, it's a 90 minute drive for me. So I'll drive collectively three hours just to see him for one hour. Cause that's how much I value it. And it's nice to take an afternoon to do something for myself. Mm. <clears throat> and we have great conversations. Um, what keeps me on a straight and narrow is I'm almost like a shark. Like I can't stop. <laughs> and that's, it's something that I've come to realize about myself. Like I cannot allow myself to sit and do nothing. And I think that doing nothing is always my enemy. And I would guess with a lot of people, doing nothing is always going to cause you problems. And so for me... You probably struggle um, with that as well when you're doing your treatments every day too. Like, um, Well, yes and no. For me, that's it's, it's about the, consist, the consistent physio buys me stability mm. and I'm also taking control of my situation by doing it true but actually it's chasing work opportunities like I, I work on weekends I'll go to um, my favorite coffee place send some emails apply for things write things and it's not I'm not a particular I'm probably quite lazy <laughs> but I can't it's simply like I just start to sink it doesn't you know, sound like, like you're lazy <laughs> 
I think like some of the busiest people in the world think of themselves as lazy and that's why they've got to, they do so much. But for me, it's, um, so I work hard um, and it helps that I love what what I'm chasing as well. And also um, I do a lot of cardio and a lot of gym time. Right. And you're able to sustain that? Like you've worked up to a level of stamina where you're able to do that with CF? Um, yes. Because um, I certainly didn't, when I start, because again, it is relatively new as well. I've been doing it for about two years. Mm. And when I started taking my exercise and stuff seriously, I was not as fit as I am now. I had to build up to it. Yeah. But the scary thing for me is I, I think you lose your ability to be to get fit if you get so unfit and so unwell. Um, and also like sometimes like if, if I travel or whatever and I can feel myself in a bit of a bad mood, I'm like, ah, what, what's going on? And I'm like, oh, I haven't done cardio in four or five days now or something like so that. So it's also like a tension release too, isn't it? Like yes. it's a mental health exercise. It, it's definitely not an explicit thing that I'm aware of, mm. but if I don't do it, I become aware of it, if you know what I mean. So um, exercise, um, working, psychotherapy, these are all things that I do to They're try and essential. maintain my state of mind, yeah. Yeah. So if there are if, if there are people who are listening who are in the chronic illness world or potentially entering it, do you mm. have some tips for them? I like to do like top three. <clears throat> what yeah. top three tips would you offer people who are looking at a life in chronic illness? Mm. I think if you're new to it, I don't know if it's a tip, but I would certainly advise that there is a huge world out there of people in your situation um, or a similar enough situation Mm. for you to get support from. Um, I think that... I, I, I don't think it's CF related. I think it's... Whether even if, if, if your struggle is mental health, commitment and consistency will change your life. It's changed mine, and it's even if it's not a physical ailment, it will transform you kind of how you feel about yourself and your experience of chronic illness or rare disease. Number three, yeah, so community commitment. Um, so yeah, com- the community of advocacy, yeah, where you get you get support and. Just it's really nourishing, yeah. really nourishing. Like passively, you just breathe it in. It's great. Um, and you say that with absolutely no irony. <laughs> no, yeah, absolutely. Yeah, I was thinking that when I was saying it. Um, and I think number three, just acknowledge and own your situation hmm. because the re- the fact of the matter is, you really don't have an awful lot of choice. Yeah. You know, this is, it's there, it's coming, you know, just grasp it, take control. Yeah. Well, and, and use that, I guess, as uh, something to empower you to then really follow up with your care team and get the right kind of care that we've been. Absolutely. Yeah. Um, Do you also have, like, obviously you've talked about, you've made lifestyle changes um, to not only manage your physical symptoms, but also your mental health. Mm. Um. Do you find that you have any like cheats or guilty pleasures or secret indulgences or even like if you're having a flare up something that you turn to that <clears throat> the comfort activity? Um, just three things that like give you joy. <laughs> yeah, well, the thing is, 
I think I, um, anyone who's, who's that has CF that's listening to this mm. will know that they, you often feel unwell. Mm. And if you don't know with CF, it, the the early onset of exacerbation symptoms are very similar for me um, to the common cold. Mm. I get kind of aches, a bit of a sore throat, a bit of a runny nose. And what it's not really an indulgence, but the re- part of the reason why I do so much exercise and physio is because I think, oh, I'm not feeling great today. Oh, but I did my cardio yesterday and it was fine. Mm. So it's almost like you, you have like a yardstick to measure yourself with. You're getting back into balance. Absolutely. And it just helps you keep keep a check on things, keep an eye on things. Because mm. um, often lung function tests can be, they can feel arbitrary. Like I felt great walking into an appointment and it's been down. So mm. I think, yeah, real world kind of stuff makes me feel better. But I, again, it's, it's difficult because in CF, my experience of CF is I can't indulge. Like mm-hmm. I love food. I eat a lot of food. But as far as vices go, I can't really afford to do it. I've got yeah. too much to do and too much to lose. Like I would love to, you know, get high every now and then or drink a lot or something, but mm-hmm. I, I can't do it because, yeah. I, you know, for obvious reasons. Well, you'd be sacrificing your well-being. Yeah, absolutely. Or, uh, you know, I would be... Like, for example, I, I don't really drink anymore at all. Mm. Um, but when I do, <clears throat> my state of mind is in a toilet for about a week afterwards. Yeah. So, and that's unpleasant. Or, um, you know, you can feel um, chesty or dehydrated or unwell. And for me, there's there's nothing, the benefits of parting and stuff really don't outweigh the sense of comfort and peacefulness I get from working hard. Mm. Yeah. And taking care of yourself. Mm. Is there anything else that you want to add for everyone listening? Um, please tell everyone where they can find you and your work. So I am on, ugh, I am on LinkedIn. I don't like it. I'm t- my, my, my profile is laughably out of date, but if you're interested <laughs> in what I've got to say, um, I'm on Twitter as pro underscore patient. Mm. Um, yeah. I just think, you know, parting words, grab it. You know, take control yeah. of your situation. And because the fact is, it might be the only thing that makes you feel better. Yeah. Yeah, absolutely. I think that's really good advice because I think there always is that push and pull, especially when you first get diagnosed. Um, and you obviously went through it when you were younger, you know, where you sort of either don't know what to do or you don't want to change the way you're living your life. But actually, if you do make those changes slowly and incrementally, um, they can make you feel so much better. So Absolutely. I think that's really great advice. Well, Thomas, thank you so much for joining us today. It's been an absolute pleasure to meet you and I'm looking forward to everyone hearing more about your work and we'll link to your Twitter on the episode page and to all the organizations that you're working with that you mentioned as well. So thank you Perfect. so much. Thanks for having me. Yeah. That's it folks. Thanks for listening. As always, please check us out online at uninvisiblepod.com and all over the social media world at uninvisiblepod. We love your feedback and suggestions, so please drop us a line via the website if you have questions, ideas for topics to cover in future episodes, or just want to say hello. 
We're all about relationships and collaboration here, so credit where credit is due. Music for this episode is by Sean Hart, who can be found at seanhart.com. Don't forget to subscribe, rate, and review wherever you listen to podcasts.